0: Discount. We'd love to see you there. This is absolutely something that we support, and we think that Awaken is a part of the growing church movement that we want to see moving forward. Once again, if you enter code absurdity at awakennc.com, you'll get a 10% discount off the initial price. Love to see you guys there.
1: Hey everyone, welcome to Absurdity. An Exploration of All Things Absurd in Culture, Religion, and Society. And today, I'm incredibly excited because if you heard last week, if you actually, I'm just going to pause right there. If you haven't heard last week's or last episode, go back immediately and listen to that um, because this is like, this is a part two of that conversation, but um, from a completely different um, perspective and it's meant to add to that, that conversation. But if you listen to this on your own, this is all you have time for today. Don't worry, you're good. This is this works perfectly as a standalone episode, but I'm really excited about this because, and it only took me 93, 94 episodes to get here, which is talking about abuse and abuse awareness and um, how we address this. Um, I w- did not want to talk about the Me Too movement or anything without voices that were not my own, that were not me, um, because I think men have talked about women. <laughs> too much already and we could we could use Wait, the break. What? Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> Shocker. Um, so I am joined once again uh, as, we, as we are in our Camp Wakanda recordings. Um, I am joined by Stephen Hall. So Stephen, thank you for coming on again.
0: I am glad to be here, man. Thank you for having
1: me. Uh, and then I'm also joined by the fabulous Sarah McDougall, who just finished a two-hour presentation and has now for some reason agreed to sit down for another hour as we talk about this.
2: Yeah, because you got me to agree to this yesterday. And let me see, do I have a voice yeah, yeah,
1: exactly. No kidding. <clears throat> I'm so, croaking my frog voice right now. Um, Sarah, thank you so much for coming it's on. It's my pleasure. I'm really excited about this and I just love how God works and brings people together mm-hmm. like this. I would have never expected this. And I'm really glad right before I was packing that I thought to bring all of my podcast equipment this week. That's awesome. So as we dive in, tell us just a little bit about who you are, um, your background, your credentials here as we jump into this conversation.
2: All right. Well, uh, first of all, I just wanted to say thanks for the opportunity. Yeah, To absolutely. join you guys on the podcast and to to have this conversation, to, I, you know, I say have this conversation, but I think start this conversation, mm-hmm. really, because um, when we're talking about abuse, I mean, it's in the news everywhere, like all these different religious denominations and society and Hollywood, everybody's being pummeled with all of this. And I think it's a, a really pivotal point in society, but if we're talking about it inside the faith community, this is really the start of the conversation. It's not having the conversation that we're ever going to get to the end of it anytime in the foreseeable future. I think, especially because abuse has so much to do with how we look at the character of God. I mean, that's a huge, huge thing. And so it takes time to reassess how we look at the character of God. That's not a minor issue in how people believe. So that being said, uh, it is absurd that it <laughs> took you 94 or 95 times to get here. But I also think that's kind of great because um, it's a really heavy topic. And um, this gives people 93-ish yeah. other this things. This is 94 right this now. This is 94 right now. Okay, so 92 because you started talking about it last week. Yeah. So it gives people like 92 other episodes to bond and connect and talk about other absurdities. Um, so what I do is is I'm an abuse recovery coach and I um, speak and write and work with clarity coaching for women who are recovering from abusive marriages and relationships in the faith community. And um, I came by that vocation kicking and screaming out of my own survivor experience. Mm. So that was never, I was never like, you know, we're 16. What do you want to be when you grow up? I want to be the girl that talks about really awkward conversations and how bad porn (laughs) is and why it really stinks when your husband's Mm. abusing you. Yeah, no, that was never ever a life goal for me. Um, I loved branding strategy and media production and videos and mission trips and international travel and all that other cool stuff. So, you know, the thing though is we never plan the things in our life that are actually possibly going to give us our greatest passion.
1: mm.
2: We never plan the stuff that is going to be those pivotal moments that changes the trajectory of where we're looking and where we're going and what we're passionate about and how we are able to help other people. And so being a survivor who um, experienced different things in my past and then having a point in my life where everything I thought was the life and reality that I had worked in partnership to build just roared up in flames around my ears. And I became a single parent in my 30s and started life over again with next Mm. to nothing. And um, so, you know, when when you're kind of bouncing from family member to family member, because you and your kids are homeless and you don't have a job and Just like everything in your world has been turned upside down. Um, It changes what you think is important in life.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
2: And you begin to treasure and value things that weren't necessarily at the top of your priority list before. Yeah. Um, And so then when you come out the other side of that, and you have opportunities to lend help from the things that you learned along the way to others who don't have resources, who are going through that same phase in life, you can't help but share. Yeah. So that is kind of just a a bird's eye glimpse um, of how I got here. And now what I do is um, I work as a speaker and author and trainer um, in teaching churches how to make their churches safer places. I work with um, a number of different organizations. Some of those are volunteer. um, And that includes things. I know that you guys have already talked about Bucket Brigade. Uh, That was last week. And Jennifer did a great job of explaining the Bucket Brigade. Project Safe Church is kind of a companion initiative Um, from the Bucket Brigade, but that is specifically in the Lake Union region of the United States. And so the five Seventh-day Adventist conferences that comprise the Lake Union have started the Project Safe Church Initiative, and I'm one of the trainers over the next two years for the Lake Union in this to implement policies that will help us be able to take action to keep our churches safer places. Um, But outside of that, I also have my own organization, which is called WILD, and that stands for Women in Leadership Development, and that is built on the four pillars of recovery after trauma, and those four pillars are wisdom, and the wisdom asks, how do I make smart choices now? Mm. Identity, and that is who am I as God has defined me to be, not as my abuser or my negative self-talk defined me to be. Not the lies I believed, but the truth that comes from God. So that's identity. Legacy is where did I come from? What baggage am I carrying that I need to learn how to rework so that I can be healthy now? And daring is where am I going? Hmm. Once I figured out how to make wise choices, once I figured out who God says that I am, and once I figured out where I've come from, Now, where am I going? So those are the four stages of recovery growth that we take women through with clarity coaching and abuse recovery coaching and moving into leadership development coaching so that they can leave that wilderness behind and learn to live wild.
1: Mm. I love it. Love it. Um, So I, when I originally started Absurdity and thought about topics like this, um, I realized early on that I would much rather, much rather, have been criticized for waiting to talk about this for the right moment, rather than talking about it when I wasn't qualified and just for the sake of talking about it. So, mm-hmm. um, for me, if it took us 92 hours worth of episodes to get here, um, that's fine, and I fully understand. I most likely could have pulled the strings to make this happen sooner, um, and so there is like definitely part of that but i'm glad that we're having the conversation now and i do think it has been over a time of building up credibility as a host Mm -hmm. and building up an audience with the show so um one thing as we move forward um because we've talked a little bit about what's coming up next on this episode you Um, weren't
2: there uh,
1: but um what's what's really important for you to know if you're listening to this is uh consider this the trigger warning um, yes. where we are going to get into some very heavy things um, almost immediately after I'm done saying this portion. So please just note that um, I don't want you to be caught off guard by some of the heavy things and some of the very visceral things that you're going to hear. Um, but if we don't talk about them, we never bring that shame into light. We never bring, it, um, we never bring that darkness into the light so that we can get rid of it. And That's so right. we're going to talk about this because this is a significant problem. This does deserve um, a spotlight on it, a big one. And so we're going to we're going to enter into that. Um, And um, so, yes, you've been warned. um, But also, if you are someone who is in this kind of position, I would encourage you. um, I I hope that by listening to some of what's going to be shared today, uh, you can find some encouragement here. Um, And so stick through. Um, But if there is something that's too tough, it's totally okay for you to take a break, for you to pause. Um, and, and, and for you to walk away for a bit, that's totally fine. No one is expecting you or forcing you to sit through any of this, but I wanted to be open about that.
2: Yeah, I, I agree. And, and I would just say to anyone who's listening, who feels like it might be hard to hear, um, this may be an episode you want to pause and then listen to with a friend. It it, it may be something where you want to make sure you're in a, in a, in a safe zone. You know, I'm not, I'm not going to like get into Catch phrases like it's safe space whatever but you know just I, if if you don't feel like you can handle really heavy duty conversation about abuse topics and this is something that's maybe been a big deal to you in your life or someone that you love dearly this would be a really great time to share absurdities with a friend yeah and and have someone around and then you can discuss it and talk mm-hmm. through it and and process and decompress afterwards.
1: So like if you're on your way to a meeting or like on your way to work in the morning, probably probably not not the time. Yeah, Yeah. table this one. Um, I know it's weird for me to tell you not to listen to the thing that I put hours of work into, but don't (laughs) listen to the thing I put hours of work into for the sake of your sanity if you need to. That's totally fine with me. So, um, don't we're, be absurd. Right? We're, we're gonna, That's my whole shtick. Um, I'm going to say that as many times so as
2: possible. You in and the Tony next both. Hour. Um,
1: <laughs> you and Tony both. Um, so let's, let's jump right into this. Um, and to do that, I think we need to, we need to address how the church has been dealing with abuse issues so far. Right. And, um, when we talked about this, you had, you had gone and done some research for us. I did. Um, so take the floor here. Um, how, what are some examples of the way churches and church leaders have dealt with um, or have treated Mm -hmm. um, victims of abuse and abuse situations?
2: That's a really great question. And first of all, I want to say that there are a lot of things a church is really good at. You know, there's times when an elderly couple needs a new porch or somebody needs help with an oil change or there's a homeless shelter and there's a soup kitchen or something. There are a lot of churches that are really, 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 really good at a lot of those kind of things. So I don't want anyone to listen to this and then come away with like, well, Sarah McDougall thinks all the churches are junk because they just don't handle anything well, because that's not where I'm headed with this. But in the situations of dealing with the messy things of abuse, traditionally churches in all denominations have not handled it well.
1: I think that's the first statement.
2: And on top of that, what we don't seem to realize is that handling abuse well is an evangelism issue. When we do not handle, when we fail to handle abuse well, when we fail to do justice while we love mercy, we egregiously misrepresent the character of God in ways that turn people away, not only from the church, but from God as an entity. Hmm. We defaith people Yeah. when we fail to handle abuse well. One in 10 Protestant young people have left their churches because they've seen abuse mishandled. And that's just the ones who report it. Hmm. So that being said... Um, when we were talking about setting up the podcast, I reached out to some private recovery groups, confidential um, online peer support groups that one that I moderate and run. It's my group and another that I'm a member in and it's run by another advocate. And I said, hey, ladies, because these are female only groups, caveat, not all abuse victims are female yeah, I just happen to work with female victims of abuse, so my terminology comes from being a female who works with female victims of abuse. It doesn't mean I believe that all perpetrators are male and all victims are female. So just throwing that out there, covering that base. Um, so I I went to these groups that are all ladies, and I said, "Hey, ladies, um, I want to. Uh, I'm, I'm I'm going on this this podcast called Absurdity." And I want to know the most absurd thing your church or your pastor said or did when you were dealing with abuse in your abusive marriage. So these are all survivors. And I wanted to cry. I mean, I know this stuff. I work in this arena. But just the lists Mm. of people from across the United States and many of them in the Seventh-day Adventist church but a number of them from other denominations as well, not entirely just one denomination and a few from other countries outside of the United States, but in heavy faith oriented cultures. Here's some of the things they said. You just tell me when you're ready for me to stop. I'll just keep going.
1: (laughs) I'm very nervous now. Let's do this. You should be.
2: No, it's not your fault. We were devastated and scared and the church did nothing to see if I or my kids were okay. My church would not honor my order of protection from the judge. My church held my my membership transfer hostage because my ex and his mother sat on the church board. They focused more on the potential salvation of the perpetrator and his possible ministry future than on the sins against me or my safety. After, my telling, after telling my pastor of the abuses and his affairs, he said, I'm sorry, I hope you can work things out, but we won't be removing him from church office. Oh my, my pastor told me that a wife's job is to have sex with her husband often to prevent him from lusting. Once on Monday, once on Tuesday, once on Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and twice on Sunday. To quote my pastor, My pastor said, if you are sweet and fun in life and the bedroom, he will never need anything outside of your marriage. If he needs something outside of your marriage, it's because of you. (laughs) My pastor's wife asked me if I bothered to wear lingerie in the bedroom. She ignored my words about his verbal abuse and drug use and spending habits and pornography addiction and the fact that he refused to work in any field unless it was one specific high-profile job. My pastor came to my house where my husband was still living but I had left months earlier and told us both to sign a contract with the church that we would separate but never divorce. He never asked why I had left. My pastor allowed my ex to attend a single Sabbath school class while we were still married and he was wooing multiple women on multiple dating sites while berating me for refusing to reconcile. I couldn't attend with him and then my church told me they couldn't help me because i disassociated myself from the church i was told that i should make him see what he's missing with me meaning bedroom behavior while he was actively cheating manipulating and lying i told my pastor i wasn't going to be prostituting myself that didn't go over well they sat me down and made me go through the 10 commandments one by one to make sure i knew i was a sinner too <laughs> Church leaders told church members to treat me with neutrality behind my back, and then the pastor preached that he hated dealing with marital issues. My pastor said, God will never, ever protect you or your children if you divorce. He gave a sermon that those who don't submit to church authority, i.e., those who divorce, are Satan's children, and they are deceived and will be used by Satan to deceive others. Wow. I was kicked out of my denomination and given an order to never set foot in any of its churches again after I told the truth about my husband assaulting me. I was threatened with legal action if I do. My pastor preached sermons about the need for women to be submissive to avoid physical abuse. He preached the same sermons at wedding ceremonies. My pastor got up and told my story in front of my entire church twice without my permission. Not only that, he announced that my abuser was, quote, a nice young man who had introduced me to the church. He changed many details and said it was to protect the congregation. The pastor told me two separate detailed victim statements from two separate wives were not enough evidence to take any action on his church leadership. My pastor told me, you don't know what you're talking about because you were abused. (laughs) My church leaders said that if I didn't call the police, it wasn't abuse. My church leaders told me they'd only be willing to counsel with me if the goal was reconciliation. My pastor asked me what I was doing to push his buttons. And when I told someone how he would curse me and call me foul names, then when I said that he was having an affair, they did nothing because he was a faithful tither. Um, Here's another one. I told my pastor and his wife what I was going through at home. My pastor's wife said, but you're so lucky to be with someone like him. Later, she told me the devil was trying to break up my marriage. Even later, I learned that she was flirting with my husband and interested in him while they were leading classes together.
1: Mm.
2: The pastor called the police on my husband, firmly believing he was molesting my children but still refused to remove him from church office. I was told at church that I had to endure to be a good wife and a godly woman. I was told to fast long and pray hard. I was told that he was the head and I was the neck, and it was my job to manipulate him by turning my neck, which in turn turns the head. I was told that my suffering and pain was the will of God to teach me. I was told that all the women my husband slept with while we were dating didn't count as infidelity or divorce because we weren't technically married yet when they occurred. Apparently the fact that I didn't learn about these affairs until after we were married didn't matter, nor did it matter that I had hard proof in the fact that I now had an STD and he was the only man I'd ever slept with. Mm. I was told to go home and be a better wife. And the last one, I was told by a well-respected older woman in the church, if I left and ever wanted to find someone to love again, I would need to really lower my standards. Wow.
1: It is, it is wild to me to hear that because I mean, age is the juxtaposition of the setting we're currently in. We're sitting in this big tent and all around us, our families playing and driving around and, and, you know, there's kids in a sandbox, like a hundred yard or 50 yards away from this tent. Um, and they're just, everyone's having a blast. And we're in here reading these heavy stories, mm-hmm. like just that juxtaposition of, of you know, peace and joy to heavy heartache in the same. And, and I'm sure many of these stories are in the same denomination, um but I, I won't assume all. But the, the theme that I'm noticing in these is... Well, I do think that the church systemically has had a problem with with policies and reporting structures and things like that the The majority of these stories are not about the system destroying them they 're about individuals destroying them uh, to me, that speaks volumes for the importance of the individual knowledge of this sort of yeah. thing the 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 uh, and the interpersonal or the value of the interpersonal and so like we could we could waste all of our time advocating for better systems and not at all train ourselves mm-hmm. to actually deal with these and not necessarily deal with in the sense that I think a pastor should step into a council role that they shouldn't be in um but but deal with them in in, in the essence of walking through them and figuring out the right tools to do, uh, or t- to walk through them and, and the right roads to take and the right steps to take as, as they navigate these. Like, um, yeah, I think that speaks volumes to the importance of, of every single person who listens and hears these stories to, right. to learn and be educated on right. everything regarding this.
2: Well, see what, what kills me is, I mean, I hear stories like this and worse. Yeah. Uh, yeah. All the time. Um, but what kills me is that every single one of those stories comes from a church where if you asked the rank and file of the membership and probably most of the pastors, how prevalent is abuse in your church, they would be like, oh, well, that happens other places. That doesn't happen here. We don't, we don't have that problem here because we don't dig deep enough or observe closely enough or pay attention enough. To realize when someone is going through things that are really that unhealthy, um, I agree with you that advocating for policies and systems will only get us just so far because policies and systems are cold and unfeeling and on paper. Mm-hmm. Um, I do want to put a caveat in there that I think policies and systems are super important. Yeah, yeah, yeah yes. Because yes. they give us a framework to operate in so that we're not all the Wild West trying to invent our own thing. Yes. So policies and systems are really helpful, but they are only as helpful as the people who use them, Mm. which comes back to what you were saying. It's the interdependent relationship between people because victims of abuse, those who are re-victimized by the church, who doesn't believe them, they are not re-victimized by policies. They are re-victimized by people who refuse to treat them with human decency Mm. and compassion and understanding and empathy.
1: Yeah. I mean, at best, a policy or a lack of policy can just show someone whether or not there's potential for help or, or recovery within whatever organization they're a part of. If I look for a policy to see how does this organization normally handle this, and there is none, I may know that may, you know, that's a flag. Right. Um, and, and so I think, yeah, there definitely is the place for them and there's a place for advocating for them. But at the end of the day where Robert meets the road is in those conversations, um, and in those moments of interaction and trust. And for a, for someone who's abused to take, to take that step of trust Mm -hmm. is huge. Um, I, yes, absolutely. So, um, from two pastors here, Oh, you want to? I nope. the way we're sitting, I can't actually see Steve. So that's oh no, it's yeah, fine. Steve. What do you want to? I didn't say no.
0: You're
2: no, good. okay, keep, never mind. Going.
1: No, you're you're fine. Okay. Um, so Sorry. <laughs> I was gonna say for for two pastors here, um, as as we're sitting with someone who is sharing with us, like how do we? I mean, there are some of those that are really obvious ways to avoid those things.
2: Yeah, <laughs> like don't be that stupid.
1: Yes, yeah. I mean it's just um yeah uh, a little
0: bit of common sense.
1: Yeah, it's. <laughs>
0: but I
2: think of be a human. Yeah.
1: Um, things, things do get complex when you do have people on boards and there are policies in place to to take care of, um, to, to address, um, issues of leadership and things like that. Um, my question is as, as, as pastors, um, what is the role of, and the importance of, of empathy and pain when it comes to me listening to someone, um, who's been abused and, um, and, and, you know, looking at those next steps, how do I navigate that conversation?
2: So that's a really excellent, that's a really excellent question. And, you know, I think that, um, there was something you were just saying just before that, that was like a perfect lead in to answering your question. And now I'm trying to remember what it was. (laughs) That little Um, backfiring golf cart over there. Yeah. Welcome to camp. uh, Right. uh, Yeah. It's awesome. Hey, it's the ambiance. It's so nostalgic. I love it here. Um, So we, Talking about empathy and pain, and um, um, the ways that pastors and church leaders and clergy can respond to these kind of things. So I'm trying to really, I'm really reaching, trying to get that that mental thing back, and it's not coming to me. Well, well okay. So, so I,
1: I I mentioned it's really easy to fall not, into Ryan. the trap of what um, of like for some of those things, it's really easy to avoid saying some of those things. That's what it was. Uh, was that it? Okay, cool. Well, so
2: so to spring back off of that, what? really is lacking in the faith community on so much of how we treat abuse is not always, sometimes it is, but not always the lack of policies. What it really boils down to is misunderstanding the character of God. Mm. Misunderstand- it. it boils down to theologies that allow leaders and sometimes members to enable and empower those who use their power to exploit. Yeah. So, when we we step back from that and and leading into this empathy and pain, like how do we show compassion to someone who's in pain as a spiritual leader? This kind of thing, leading into that, we have to step back first and say, I mean, it's cliché, what would Jesus do? But without like getting mired into the cliché, what is the character of God that it is my duty to reflect in this conversation. If we believe that God is a control freak and a tyrant, that's what we will reflect. If we believe that God places some people in power over other people in order to use them, that's how we're going to act. But when we really look at the character of Christ and how Jesus reflects God's character in scripture, we cannot help but come away with the realization that God, Ty Gibson says this, he's one of my favorite speakers, God will win us to his heart with love or not at all. Mm. And if we are seeking to lead spiritually in churches and homes and communities, the way Christ leads, then we will lead with love. Not coercion, not manipulation, not deception, not force, not um, deflection, not gaslighting, not tricking people into decisions, not forcing people to do what we want. Lucifer, Satan, has this whole toolbox available Every nefarious thing, and God uses one thing, love, and He trusts your free choice. Mm. If our picture of God is one that has warped that idea of love and free choice and has taken tools out of the devil's toolbox and dropped them in God's toolbox, then we are going to respond to abuse situations wrong every time. Mm. We're going to feel a connection and a kinship with the perpetrator because they're handling things in a way that we think God might. Mm. Because we don't see coercion and power over for what it is, tools of the devil. So I, I say that because I believe handling abuse is an evangelistic issue. I believe it is a theological issue. I believe it is a character issue. And when we talk about empathy, It is so vital for us to enter in as church leaders, for us to enter into the experience of those around us and come alongside them and Mm -hmm. feel their feelings. So empathy is defined in, in, as I define it in what we're talking about, is the ability to come beside someone and enter into their emotions. Paul says, rejoice with those who, I think it's Romans 12, 15. Rejoice with those who rejoice, grieve with those who grieve, mourn with those who mourn. Depends on what translation you like. So if I'm rejoicing with you because you're rejoicing, it's not my joy. I am entering into your joy. Mm. If I am grieving with you because you're grieving, it's not my grief. I am choosing to step into your grief. And you would do the same for me. When we do not express or live or act in empathy, we reduce our capacity for intimacy. Hmm. We cannot connect with another person. And over time, we cannot connect with God either. And that shrinks down the edges of our relationships, both with other people and with God. So if we don't understand this, then when someone cries crocodile tears and says, they're not guilty, it's really easy to get all drawn into that because it's this big display of emotion and we don't see the pain of the other person who's shriveling and wilting yeah. over here in the corner. Um, so as we talk about abuse, narcissism is a big catchphrase. I mean, 20 years ago, nobody talked about narcissists. Ten years ago, not too many people talked about narcissists unless you were in the psychology field. Nowadays, everybody knows what a narc is. Yep. The thing is, we tend to misapply the term. Somebody loves taking selfies. Oh, you're so narcissistic. Well, that's really not what it's all about. Mm. You have psychology, secular psychology, who says narcissism is a disease you can't get over, you can't change, people are born this way. Well, you know, I don't subscribe to that either because that nullifies the gospel. It's yeah. saying God can't change anyone. And I don't think God creates people he can't change. Mm. We choose. That goes back to free will. God offers love and we operate in free will. We can choose to kill our own empathy. We can choose to reject the Holy Spirit. You reject the Holy Spirit over and over and over and over again, and you're going to no longer feel someone else's feelings. You're no longer going to connect with someone else's pain. Here's the thing. The more we kill our empathy, the less we can feel someone else's love as well. Yeah. If I am low in the empathy index and high on the narcissism index, I can not only, not only am I disconnected and detached from the hurt you feel because of your abuse situation, I also cannot connect with someone who loves me. I can't feel their love for me. Now, this comes into the gospel where we're saying, I want to feel how much Jesus loves me. Well, if your empathy index is so low that you can't connect with other human beings either, you can't feel God's love for you.
0: You've hardened your heart, like Scripture says.
2: Yes. You've hardened your heart, and that leads to one of two paths, legalism or hedonism. You either chase every thrill trying to feel something, Mm -hmm. pleasure-seeking, or you work your tush off trying to earn God's love because you can't feel it. Here's the other thing. The bookend to that is if you cannot feel the feelings of others, not only can you not feel God's love for you, you also cannot feel his death on the cross. You cannot emotionally connect Mm. with the sacrifice of the cross, which means you have nullified the gospel for yourself. Hmm. I believe that any person who is alive and breathing is not beyond the redemption of God. God is there and the gospel can change us. The harder our hearts, however, and by the time someone has gotten to the point of being actively, systemically abusive to people in their lives, their hearts are hard. Mm -hmm. But the harder our hearts are, the less likely it is we will ever choose to do the difficult, messy, self-shattering work of coming back to where God can soften us again, but it's up to us. He respects our choice to leave. He respects our choice to reject Him. He respects our choice to walk toward Him or to walk away from Him. Okay, so how does that all tie in with what your question was? With about like you know pastors and it doesn't matter. This in answer empathy. was great on its own. Well, okay, <laughs> but it thanks, does but, matter. You know, but it, yeah, but yeah. it matters. I, I want to loop back around to that. Yeah. So, and this is where I, I love that you did last week's. Um, with Jennifer and and this week's, like, they're, they're bookends to each other dealing yeah. with super different types of of content on the abuse topic and coming at it from different angles. So this philosophy of understanding the mindset of God toward us is crucial for spiritual leaders. If you believe that God is love, then you are not only going to want to show love to the person who's being accused of abuse— Because that's an instant perpetrator bias. Oftentimes, the person being accused of abuse is male, looks just like the pastor. He's like my bro. We've had nice times on the golf course together. How could he possibly have done this to anybody else? He's always been super nice to me. Mm -hmm. I can't imagine him acting this way. It must be wrong. And then you think, what if somebody alleged me doing that? Like, I would want someone to stick up for me. And so I'm going to stick up for him. And you're not thinking, what if... What if I was her and what if someone needed for me to stick up for them? Yeah. So this whole, like, we, we want to, you know, believe the best. Well, that needs to go both ways. You need to believe the best of the victim as well, mm-hmm. not just believe the best of the alleged perpetrator. Because uh, if you're saying that the perpetrator is innocent until proven guilty, the inverse of that. Is that the victim is a liar until proven innocent? Yeah, that's blowing your mind right now. <laughs> um. well, it,
0: it, I mean, it's it is because it's so simple and so stark, and when you hear it, it's like, of course, that's
1: yeah, duh, <laughs> yeah. That's, that's absurd. Uh, well, don't I, is it is this? well, and and I think so. You talk about perpetrator bias, and 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 one of the things I just thought about when you when you brought this up is as a pastor. Um, and as someone, and I watch this in comments online, I watch this in YouTube videos, I watch this everywhere. Um, there's a real fear in pastors of and, and leaders being falsely accused. Mm-hmm. There's such a fear in us that when we do hear someone being accused, we almost project that fear onto them, and we mm-hmm. choose to empathize the other way. We right. choose to say, "What well, you know? How does it feel to be falsely accused?" And we jump into this protection of the perpetrator mm-hmm. because it's because we're actually projecting a protection of ourselves. Um, and, Excellent point. um, and I'm just thinking about this now, like I'm not, mm-hmm. this is, I'm learning today. This yeah. is, this is, I'm not, but that's what it, that's, that's my observation here is, is we're, we're choosing to operate out of our own personal fear instead of, um, this, um, this obligation we have to protect mm-hmm. the people that are victims. And, the flip side of that, too, is we talk about accused versus accuser. Man, our theology is all around a being that we call the accuser, um, and he's the bad guy, and he's the bad guy. And so, it's, it's really not that oh, hard. Dude, I
2: have not thought yeah, about it's
1: that. it's not before. that hard of it's not that far of a leap. This is, I'm thinking about it now. This is, Whoa. I'm really excited. Um, it's not that far of a leap to go to automatically always assume that the accuser. Has is trying to gain something because we preach in our church fifty two weeks a year that the accuser is always trying to gain something and steal something from God, whether it's steal the spotlight or steal the power or to simply hurt or yes anything. Wow. Um, and so that's
2: showing up in future presentations, um, and I will just put credit by Ryan Becker. I got
1: chills too. This is exciting. (laughs) Um, but yeah, it, it is not that far of a leap, and and this is why. Like when I hear this, um, I shared. I think. Um I think last week with Jennifer I said something to the effect of uh, if I'm hearing that someone I know has abused someone, I almost take the default position of um of believing them just to fight against my own bias to to believe that
2: right, right. They're, yeah, my I friend wouldn't you do this.
1: That. I think I would amend that now to say not that I would default to believing them, but I would default to denying myself. Um in that moment. I can see that. Um, and, and I don't know if that it clarifies that language at all, but basically to say, uh, whatever my, my, um, denying my, the fear that I have myself of being falsely accused, denying, um, and, and, and really just saying, look, if this wasn't someone I know, how would I walk through this? If this wasn't someone I had a personal connection with, how do I walk through this? Right. And, Doing that because that's the duty that I have, and that's the that's really the tacit agreement I've I've signed, so to speak, by getting involved in ministry to begin
2: with. Amen. Absolutely. Um,
1: so I, you know, that's I think that's where I land on on kind of all of this right now. But
2: right, yeah, right. So okay, so springboarding off of that, um, here here's something else to think about, and that is, everyone projects, mm-hmm. and you just implied it, but everyone projects someone who has nefarious intent is going to assume that everyone around them is lying because they lie. Yeah, They're going to assume that everyone around them is out to get them because they're out to get the people Mm -hmm. around them. They're going to assume that other people have negative intentions because that's where they operate from. Hmm. People of good conscience project too. When you hear of someone who has committed egregious abuse towards someone else and you're like, how can they even look at themselves in the mirror? Like, how does anybody even do that? How do they sleep (laughs) at night? You've said it. Yes. You've said it to yourself at times you hear about something. You're like, how is that even possible? No, seriously. You're projecting your tender conscience on a person who has none. Mm -hmm. They can do those things and sleep like a baby at night because they don't have your conscience. So we do others a disservice when we project our good conscience on them just as much as if someone else projects their lack of conscience on everyone else. Mm -hmm. Because you're assuming that they're bound by the same moral code that you are. Mm. And here's something, if you want to read up more on this, The Sociopath Next Door by Martha Stout. One in 25 people today is a full-blown sociopath. No conscience. Four out of every 100 people. You got a 300-member church? That is a
0: staggering
2: number. You've got a a dozen sociopaths in that church. Wow. So here's the thing. Not every sociopath is a serial killer. Not everyone's going to be Ted Bundy.
1: But every sociopath is still a sociopath.
2: But every sociopath is still a sociopath. They may, the worst thing they do may be throwing a coworker under the bus and shamelessly stealing office supplies from Mm -hmm. work. Now, is that something they should do? No. But because of different personalities, history, trauma, proclivities, interests, whatever, not every sociopath is going to be a criminal. Yeah. But they still have no conscience. They operate without being slowed down by a conscience. Hmm. And of course, then there are sociopaths who are horrific criminals. Yeah. But if we assume that every sociopath is a monster, we're wrong. Four out of every 100 have no operating conscience. So that person who is on your church board and seems to just lie with impunity... It's a possibility Mm -hmm. that they actually don't have a conscience and they're fine with lying and they don't feel bad about it. Mm -hmm. Same thing with an abusive person, an abusive spouse. Someone, not all abusive spouses are sociopaths. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying that it's very common that an abusive spouse has sociopathic traits because they have no problem manipulating, gaslighting, doing something and then saying they never did it, deceiving, and these kinds of things. Hmm. So when you have someone coming to you and saying, oh, she just makes stuff up or, oh my goodness, you can't imagine what it's like to be me in my house or whatever, you pastors and church leaders have to recognize their limitations. You cannot tell when someone is lying. Here's what else you need to know about victims of abuse and lying. Every victim is going to lie to you.
1: Okay, you're going (laughs) to... I'm waiting for the... (laughs) I know. Yeah.
2: Every victim is going to lie to you because until they get to the point where they're ready to tell the truth, they will tell you it's okay. Mm. They will swear up and down that life is fine. They will wear a smile coming to church... They will serve in whatever role they've been given. They will bend over backwards. They will defend the person who is abusing them in private at home, sometimes because they feel that is their biblical duty. They will make excuses. They will shoulder the blame. They will help carry the consequences. They will minimize the abuse they are living with. And every victim will lie to you because they will try to convince you that it's okay because they're trying to convince themselves that it's not as bad as it really is. Mm. Wow. Yeah. When a victim comes to you and actually says something is very wrong, that's when they're not lying anymore. It takes so much courage to just even start to hint at the fact that they've been lying when they said things were okay. Yeah. That you have to be willing to hear those nuances and listen for what's under the surface.
1: So, as as we move forward here, because we we have made the transition in talking of victims now, um, how does someone who has been ha- has become a victim? Mm-hmm. You know, how do they how do they move forward? How do we help them move forward? Not just as pastors, as church members, right? Mm-hmm. And I think honestly, anything we're saying about pastors really does apply pretty much across the board here. If someone Absolutely. comes to you and wants to be listened to and wants to be heard, then listen, right? So there's be a, a decent human yeah, being. There's exactly. So how does a victim move forward and and sp- more specifically, um what is the role of forgiveness in that because forgiveness mm. is this huge thing in Christianity. Um and I we, I think I've talked about forgiveness on, on this podcast before, and I have a feeling we're going to agree. I'm hoping we're going to agree. But if I not, I've not heard that episode, if, so if I, I have
2: no idea. Um, but you're if, welcome if, to disagree yeah, no, with me. I'm if, I'm okay with that. Well, but here's the
1: thing. <laughs> I want to agree with you here because so far I've agreed with everything else you've said. Um so yeah, what what do we how do we how does a victim move forward here and especially from that conversation or, or just they're out of the abuse situation, what do we do and, and how do we Emotionally, how do they move forward in forgiveness and, and um, yeah, and progress?
2: Right. So, um, when it comes to forgiveness, there are some really pervasive myths in the faith community. The first is that forgiveness equals trust and reconciliation. It doesn't. Forgiveness is taking that person's debt to you off the hook with you and putting them on the hook with God. Make sense?
0: Yeah. And I think, I just want to reiterate, because I think you said something that's incredibly important. The idea that you can forgive someone and it does not lead to reconciliation is very hard to reconcile for many, many people. Mm -hmm. But it's important to understand that, especially for the health and well-being of somebody was coming from an abuse situation, it, it yes. might be necessary that there's not reconciliation. Yeah.
2: Correct.
1: Well, and let's, I mean, let, let's even divorce this idea from the idea of abuse, right? Um, my dad, um, uh, I had a dog growing up. Mm-hmm. Um, dog got sick. Tumors everywhere. You could feel Aww. them through, um, through her chest. And my dad told me, hey, tomorrow after school, we're going to have to put your dog down. And I said, well, please wait till I get home. Uh and I will, it's so that I can be there. And I got home from school the next morning and my dad had done it on his way to work. Um, and that was when I was, I think 13 or 14. He died when I was 17 and I couldn't forgive him until about three or four years ago.
2: Wow. Mm.
1: But he's not around to reconcile with. Right. He had been dead for five years up to then. Right. Forgiveness, there are moments where forgiveness has to happen regardless of whether mm-hmm. reconciliation can take right. place. So if you, can, if you can accept that it can happen in a completely you know, divorced situation from the area of abuse, then there's got to be some form of it that, mm-hmm. that can translate into mm-hmm. where the person is still alive. Right. Because we've just established forgiveness is possible regardless of the other person's involvement in it.
2: Correct. I, I completely agree with you on that.
1: Yes. That's okay. Awesome. We're off. We're off to <laughs> no, a, 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 a yes, a good start, refer, here. start there. Okay. So yes, um, it's it's so letting yeah. forgiving them of the debt, placing mm-hmm. it on God.
2: Correct. And so, when we talk about forgiveness, often in church, we intermingle, we intertwine the ideas of forgiveness with getting back together, or forgiveness with taking the person, removing the person from accountability. Well, but you forgave me. Why are you still punishing me? I forgave you. That doesn't mean you don't have consequences for what you did. That doesn't mean if you stole 200 bucks from my wallet, that doesn't mean I'm leaving my cash laying around on the table. Mm -hmm. I don't trust you. You haven't earned my trust. So when we talk about forgiveness, reconciliation comes with earned trust due to changed behavior. When someone cries and says, sorry, you give them a tissue. You don't give them trust and reconciliation. That only comes with time and proof of them choosing to be a safe person for your trust. Mm-hmm. So in situations of abuse, Mike Tucker is uh, a fantastic resource with the Mad About Marriage seminars that he does. I know he was just here this earlier this weekend, mm-hmm. this past weekend, speaking here at, at this camp. Um, one of the things he says is that in order for someone who is abusive to prove that they have changed, they need to be participating in professional abuser intervention therapy three to four times per week for up to five years before you can trust that change has taken place. Now, most of the time when churches are like, well, you need to forgive. He's been really good for like six weeks now. You need to forgive. They're not thinking the five-year plan for showing repentance. When you have someone who is saying that they are sorry and they're begging for forgiveness and they're equating forgiveness with getting back everything they like about life, all their privileges, all their perks, the perks of being married, they're getting back their sex life, they're getting back the adoration of their children, they're getting back the financial convenience of having everyone under the same roof, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So when you have someone who is saying they're really, really sorry, please forgive me, usually in an abuse situation, that's code for stop punishing me. I'm done with my consequences now. Mm. So forgiveness needs to be extended in time by the person who has been hurt. Mm. I absolutely believe in forgiveness.
0: On their timetable and not On the churches or, their the, timetable. or the perpetrators.
2: Yes. No one gets to dictate, especially not the person who caused the harm, when you are ready to forgive. When churches empower abusers to use the forgiveness weapon as a way to avoid or escape accountability and consequences and long term structures for change, it's just a facade. They're weaponizing forgiveness theology. Hmm. So here's the thing. Now, I'm ready to. St- Do I have permission to use my hobnail boots and step on some of your pastor's toes? Oh, go for it. Go for it. Okay. Yeah. They may not have toes left by the time I'm done. That's fine. Okay. Do, we, do you have an orthopedist standing by? <laughs> <laughs> uh,
1: I do have a wonderful one back in, in Chattanooga. Okay, so yeah, okay, we're okay. good. Don't worry. So we, we, got, we got
2: references if you need orthopedic surgery when we are done with this, because yes. I am going to chop off your, your toes here. Um, when pastors tell victims of abuse that they have to go back and forgive, they are hand in hand doing the work of Satan and repeating the first lie of the Garden of Eden. Let me unpack that. The lie in the garden was that you can sin and not die. You shall not surely die. But the truth of redemption and the gospel is that sin kills things. When I sin against you, there is a death. There is the death of trust. There is the death of companionship. There is the death of relationship. There is the death of comfort. There is the death of being at ease in each other's presence. There's the death of so many things when we sin against each other. It breaks relationship. When pastors tell victims to go home and be more forgiving, and they rush that, and they equate it with reconciliation, what they are Also telling the abuser by default is that they can sin with impunity and nothing will die. Hmm. You can abuse your wife and she won't leave. You You can lie, you can assault, you can cheat, you can commit adultery, you can be addicted, you can do all of these things that are abusive patterns of behavior and not suffer the consequences of the death of trust, because we're going to stand here, rank and file as your church, and make sure she has to trust you again.
1: And in fact, if she leaves, then it's her fault.
2: Exactly. So when pastors force forgiveness and reconciliation, they are perpetrating the lie of the serpent in the tree. Hmm. Because you cannot just forgive and forget. If you forgive and forget... That's rubbish advice, by the way. If you forgive and forget, you're refusing to learn the lesson that that experience was to teach you. Forgive and remember. Otherwise, I mean, fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me, right? So you are contributing to the perpetuation of the ongoing abuse if you are buying into the thought that you just have to forgive and forget and forgive and forget. Now here, an abuser loves it. Because as long as you treat every instance as a separate thing, then you're not seeing the pattern. Mm. And abuse is a system. It is a pattern of behaviors. Everyone can do abusive things at times. You lose your temper. You get upset. You have a really, really terrible day you're not nice to somebody that you actually genuinely care about. The question is, do you do that in a systemic habitual pattern of behaviors or were you horrified at how you acted and then you do everything in your power not to repeat that? Yeah. So we're all sinful. Mm -hmm. Doing something stupid or doing something sinful doesn't make you an abuser. Doing those continually without repentance and then using manipulative kindness to keep the people around until you're nasty again, that is an abusive pattern of behavior. So when you have the forgiveness theology of it's buried in the depths of the sea, you can't dredge that up. Stop talking about the past. Stop digging up old things. You need to forgive it, bury it, and never talk about it again. You are empowering the pattern to continue because you're not stepping back and looking at it with a bird's eye view and saying, hey, you guys, this is a whole system.
0: And like you said, you're misrepresenting the character of God because from a scriptural standpoint, God forgives our sins, but that does not protect us from the consequences of those sins. You look at the life of David, Mm -hmm. a man after God's own heart, he was not protected from the consequences of his actions.
1: Yeah, but if we've forgiven people, then, you know, I I think fully that if— you know, if I'm going to forgive someone who's a child rapist, then clearly, if we've forgiven them, they should totally be in teaching our children Sabbath school classes. Obviously. Well, duh. Well, duh. Come on. That's absurd. Uh, no, but that, like, that's <laughs> honestly, like, take the law. Even, even if you do believe forgive and forget, like, there's a point where you no longer buy into that.
2: <laughs> Actually, there's a lot of churches that do pretty much that. But I know. You know no, hey.
1: yes, but they're like every. I think every individual there is some. There is some place in the, in the extent of their beliefs, theology, mm. or logic where they would not apply that. Right. Uh, and if you can find one, you've poked the hole in it. Correct. It's
0: usually where liability comes into play. Yes, right? it's insurance. Just, yes. Standpoint. Risk management. Yeah, exactly.
1: And where they're going to get sued. i used for for it. Yes. example. Shocking. But, but yeah. yes. Yeah. Um, and just so we're clear, I don't think that we should forgive and, and put child sex offenders back in. <laughs> okay, just so we're 100% clear, I being sarcastic there, but yes. Um, <laughs> okay, but, yeah. okay
2: but, but with that, We forget other forgiveness texts. Luke 17, 3. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. Mm. So what do we do with that? If you're supposed to just forgive and forgive and forgive and forgive and forgive, no matter what they do, no matter if they change, then what do we do with Luke 17, 3? What do we do with Micah 7, 19? Is it Micah or Malachi?
1: Depending on what the oh, next words are good.
2: out of your
0: mouth, uh, I can, can... Well, Malachi only has four chapters, chapters. Oh, so, so it's got to yeah, be Micah. So, Mica be 7, I mean, yeah.
2: so this, is, this is the text where, who is a godlike unto us that has, pardons our iniquities, and he's, I mean, he pardons our transgressions, he subdues our iniquities, and casts them into the depths it's of the sea. The sea so we talk about God casts our sins into the depths of the sea. I said I was sorry. You are the controlling witch who keeps dragging it back up. And you won't let it go. You just want to punish me, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. We forget this one little phrase right there before cast him into the depths of the sea. He subdues our iniquities. Active patterns of sin are not iniquities that have been subdued. Mm. If you're still committing the sin in an ongoing pattern, this is not a subdued iniquity. It ain't going to the bottom of any ocean anywhere. Yeah, It is right here needing to be subdued. So when we take those types of things and we look at forgiveness texts that we tend to gloss over, there is a definite, and there are others, there is a definite balancing in scriptural teaching that repentance must precede forgiveness. The subduing of the iniquity must precede any kind of reconciliation. And here's the other thing. There's two types of forgiveness. There's forgiveness applied and forgiveness supplied. Mm. So forgiveness supplied with an S is the kind of forgiveness God gives me as a gift to bring peace to my heart. It doesn't matter if you ever change. Yeah. You could have done something horrific, murdered my family member. And regardless of what happens to you, I choose to forgive you because I'm placing you back in the hands of God for his consequences, and I am not going to give that any more power in my life to control me. That's forgiveness supplied. It's a gift from God, and we all take our own time and journey to get there. Forgiveness applied is when I give you my forgiveness because you're ready and you want it. You've repented. You want the repair. You want to know that you've been forgiven. And that's when I apply the forgiveness to you. And we don't separate those often, especially when we're talking about abuse situations. An abused spouse can forgive from a distance, a safe distance where she's not going to get hurt or killed or continue allowing the perpetrator to sin against her. Because loving someone well... Does not include greasing their path to hell by allowing them to continue sinning against you. Yeah. Refusing to put boundaries down isn't the way to love someone well. You're allowing their character to continue being reinforced in abusive ways, and you're the target. Mm. Mm. Now, does that mean you need to go home and stand up to the guy who's threatened to kill you or whatever? No, that's how you die. That's how you become headlines. But you may need to separate. Mm -hmm. You may need to find a safety plan. And it is so important for our pastors and church leaders to recognize that these are really important things. When you tell a woman to go back and just love more, and I don't know. Do you want me to get into that? I don't know how much time. We well, have.
1: yeah. So we do. We we <laughs> we're definitely going over, but oh dear. For the sake of the fact that we're about to be flooded with a bunch of youth, right. um, in this uh, tent, we, is, do, we do we do need, need to. We need we're to good. get supper. Um, yeah, and supper. Um, I, I I you've touched on this several times, so I won't actually jump to this. Sure. Uh, and this will be the last major point I think that we hit. Um, is Matthew eighteen and this yes. idea of sending okay. someone back to? Um, back right. to the person that's wronged them. And I really want to hit that because I, I think that's that's vital for us to touch on. Okay. Um, so Matthew eighteen is is the um in, in Matthew eighteen is uh, where Jesus says, if your brother sins against you, uh confront him one on one. Um if he still refuses to repent or acknowledge, mm-hmm. then take one or two with you. If that doesn't work, bring it before the church um for for consequences and 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 you know, mediation, whatever. So that's that's that verse. Um that's right. I think it's like eighteen thirty four. It's It starts fif- in 15,
2: 15, 15, to, oh, 15 okay.
1: to 17. There we go. Okay, so take us through that. Okay. Um, give us an understanding of this as it, as it relates to this context.
2: All right. So very often um, an abused person will come to their spiritual leaders, and they will say, uh, hey, I, this is going on. And they're like, well, have you talked to him about it? Have you confronted him about his behavior? And the victim answers whatever they have or have not done, and the pastor's like, well, I can't help you until you've gone alone in private, to confront them. Now, the absurdity of this would be that if you had suffered a carjacking, your pastor probably wouldn't tell you to go alone to the carjacker and confront them over their behavior. Mm. But in an abusive situation, we hear that happen a lot. And it results from a basic misunderstanding in our theology on what Jesus was even talking about. First of all, this is not a power inequality. This is if a brother sins against you. Now, whether it's a brother or a sister, this is somebody who's your equal. This it's is a, not yeah. Someone, it's a horizontal relationship. It's a horizontal relationship by definition. A an abuser victim relationship is a power inequality. It is not a horizontal relationship because the abuser holds all the power, mm-hmm. or at least the bulk of it. Yeah. So, if a brother sins. Now, here's the other part. First of all, this is equal and horizontal. Second, many translations leave out sins against you. It's just, if a brother sins, go privately and point out his offense. So let's just say that the two of you are having a conversation, and one of you realizes that the other one is choosing to do some stupid stuff that's going to hurt you, and it's actually sinful. Why are you pointing at Ryan? What? No, what? what? No, what? What?
1: Hey, there are 3 fingers pointing back at you whenever <laughs> you point at someone. My Unless point, you do the Disney point.
2: Yeah, then it's just 2 fingers. Then it's
1: just 2 fingers. So,
2: my point being, so if you realize someone you care about who is your equal is doing something sinful, go talk to them privately. It doesn't mm. even have to be an offense against you. This is like I reckon I I I figured out you're doing something that's yeah. going to hurt you, bro. I want to go help you. Yeah. Please don't do this to yourself. And hey, if that doesn't work, well, I tried not to embarrass you next time I'm bringing one of our friends along. Mm-hmm. And we're going to have an intervention because we care about you and your salvation. And if that doesn't work and they choose to continue living in sin, then you take it to the church and the church adjudicates. Mm-hmm. Well, first of all, pastors who send victims back To do this Matthew 18 conflict resolution, pretty rarely end up taking it to the whole church to expose the abuser.
1: Mm. So they say it with the intent to not really follow through or the hope that it never gets to that point. It's a brush off. Yeah.
2: They never intend to get to step three. Here's the thing this has nothing to do with abuse. You know why? It's not just because I don't think so or because I don't want it to, it's because. In the very beginning of this chapter, Jesus already covered abuse. Yeah. In the very beginning of this chapter, Matthew 18, same scenario. Jesus called a little child to him, and he says, unless you turn from your sins and become like little children, you will never get into the kingdom of heaven. Verse 4. Anyone, wait a second. Nope. Verse 6. six yeah. If you cause one of these little ones who trusts in me to fall into sin, if you harm a little one.
0: Or enable.
2: Or enable. Cause, harm, enable. Now, side note, educational side note, the term for little ones can be interpreted small child or those who are lesser in power. I was going to say, that's a power dynamic. One, Someone who has less power. Than you, if you cause one of them to sin, if you harm them, it would be better for you to have a large millstone tied around your neck, go swimming. Mm. So, when it talks about power exploitation and abuse in the same scenario, Christ already, con- Christ already covered that millstone meet neck, go swimming. Mm. When we get further down in this sermon and he's talking about realizing a brother's harming himself by, you know, doing something stupid that's actually sinful, go talk to him privately, try not to embarrass him before you drag other people into it, that has nothing to do with conflict resolution in the context of abuse. So Matthew 18 is a wonderful passage for preserving someone's dignity if they're making a potentially self-harmful choice. Yeah. But it is not the path to conflict resolution in a situation well,
1: of abuse. And I want to add another caveat here because in the way you've talked about this, it would be easy for me as a pastor to go, okay, so if if someone comes to me and this dude is my friend that they're accusing, then I should go to them and say, hey man, you should, you should, you know, I'm hearing this, um, you know, cut it out. Um A, the text says, if your brother um, if your brother sins, the investigative process is to find out if there if sin has right. taken place. And, and, and
2: beyond that, we're not talking criminal behavior.
1: Yes, correct. We are not. Um, but I want to, I, I want to add a, there's a very important caveat. I really want to add to this, which is um, by alerting the accused that they have been accused. If the accuser is still um, accessible,
2: you are putting their life, in you
1: danger. are putting their life in danger. And I know this because it's happened in my own life. Yeah. Um, where where um, APS, Adult Protective Services, is actually the the group that did this, um, where them showing up unannounced to a place I had called APS about um, de- them determining, oh, there was no, there was nothing wrong here, because of course the abuser is going to deny it. Mm-hmm. Um, when they left, the abuser w- went into a, um, a, a intense rage. Yeah. Um, you are endangering a person's life. By, by confronting the accused without protecting the, without making sure there's separation from the accuser, regardless of, of whether or not, um, regardless of whether or not you believe that they did something or not. Right. Like, it's not worth the risk. Yeah. It's a life at stake, quite literally, mm-hmm. especially in the case of physical abuse.
2: Yeah. Well, and psychological terrorism yes. can often cross into physical abuse when there's an emotional trigger like that, when there's an accusation or an allegation or something. So if someone trusts you enough as a spiritual leader to confide in you that they do not feel safe or that they are facing issues, it is absolutely vital to preserve their confidentiality and to protect their safety and to not take any action that could in any way compromise their safety. Um. That's so, a good note to end on. Yeah, it <laughs> That's is. That's a positive note. Um, it is. And actually, I'm
1: going to ask you one directly positive question as we go into final thoughts. Um, so this is an a, a and B here, unless it's the one and the same, which is any words of encouragement that you have for someone who is um, going through abuse or someone who's trying to help a loved one through an abusive situation? Um, any words of encouragement for them? Anything you would, you would really want to, them to know after listening to this? And uh, any final thoughts from you on, on this as we wrap up?
2: Okay, well, my, my thoughts on that would be just that if you are experiencing an abusive situation, the odds are that you have been made to feel like you are very isolated and very alone. And regardless of what anyone in your life has told you, you are not alone. Hmm. There are others who have gone through this before you and there are others who have made it their life's work to make sure that they can help those who are experiencing it now. And regardless of whether your story is destined to turn out with reconciliation or separation or escape or whatever that path may take, you are not alone if you want to reach out for help. And when you are ready to reach out for help, it is there. Mm-hmm. And I am going to give you links. Yeah. Well, the I literally, notes.
1: that's ne- the next thing as we, as we, as we close is how can people connect with you? What are the, yeah. what are the avenues available? Because honestly, we sped through um, just a tiny portion of what you have set up as 10 full presentations, right? So yeah. 10 full 90 minute long presentations. Mm-hmm. We did this in an hour basically. So um, what are links to some further resources? Where would you point people to go from here? And yes, all of these will be in the show notes. So you can just, awesome. uh, yeah, access the episode description. You'll be able to click all the links.
2: Awesome. Yes. So um, if you want to connect with me personally, I'm really active on social media, particularly Facebook and Instagram. So if you search Sarah McDougall on Facebook, and that's S-A-R-A-H-M-C-D-U-G-A-L. Sarah McDougal author is my page on Facebook. Um, I'm also on Instagram, Sarah McDougal, Twitter, Sarah McDougal. And um, I have my website, which has blogs for abuse recovery. It has resources. It has best books to read. If you're trying to help someone who is recovering from abuse, if you're trying to teach your kids about abuse or a porn addiction or help protect your kids, if you are trying to recover from abuse yourself, I have book lists and resources and visuals and graphics and just all kinds of stuff on my website. And that's just sarahmcdougall.com. I also have a series of online training courses and online group coaching in addition to individual sessions for abuse recovery or clarity coaching. And those are all at Wilderness to Wild. Out of the wilderness, into the wild. So wilderness mm-hmm. to wildernesstowild.com is where you will get in touch with our online training school. And so there are various things and, and training courses and group coaching things available there. And um, if you have a personal situation that you really want to know about, like kind of confidential resources for it. shoot me a Facebook message, um, shoot me an Instagram message, and I will do my best to hook you up. Oh, I also have like a couple hundred videos on YouTube with all <laughs> kind of, I always forget about YouTube. I don't know why. I have like two hundred and fifty videos on YouTube. Wow. With um, six steps to biblical forgiveness, um, domestic violence awareness stuff, a a day by day sixty four or sixty six studies chapter by chapter through the book of Isaiah from an abuse recovery point of view, just a daily devotional thing. Um, Presentations, abuse passages that are often twisted and misunderstood, you name it, it's on YouTube. So there's a ton of resources there. And I want to, I try to make sure those are all available free to people because education awareness is so, so yeah. important. And we started out talking about bucket brigade and project safe church. So project safe church.org and bucket brigade against abuse.com are both resources for reporting allegations of abuse, specifically within the seventh day Adventist denomination in order to help find. Yeah, you know, to, to, to get help and guidance on how to yeah. deal with something that may be an active or a past situation. Um, Lots and lots of resources.
1: Absolutely. So, thank you for those. And I also include a link to the book, The Sociopath Next Door, that way you don't have to scrub all the way back through the episode to find where she said that. Um, So, that'll be there as well.
2: Hey, hey, hey. I have a book coming out, and it's a co write with Jennifer and our third colleague. Did she tell you about this book?
1: Uh, No, but you mentioned it earlier today somewhere else. So, so.
2: um, at some point, maybe we can go back when it's out. Maybe we can go back and like have, well, you know what? If you follow my social media, it'll be all over my social media when it comes out. It's going to be out in the next couple of months. It just came back from the proof. Well, and you are
1: welcome back on this show whenever you want. Well, thank you. You have an open invitation. Thank you. Thank you. Honestly, this, this kind of conversation is the, is the exact reason I started this show. That's awesome. um, To deal with and address these issues. And I can't thank you enough for, um, for not just sharing with us and teaching us here, Um, this has been one of the quietest episodes (laughs) from the host standpoint, I think I've had. Um, but yeah, I can't thank you enough for educating us, but also, um, I can't affirm you enough for taking what was something very traumatic in your own life and, um, letting God do something amazing with it to help and do the work of rescue for others. Mm -hmm. Um, you are a living embodiment of the gospel. Um, and I don't mean that to like inflate your ego, um, but I, I do mean, I do mean thank you for showing us what it means to love like Jesus mm-hmm. loved. Um, and thank you for the work that you're doing and, Thanks. um, yeah, we'll be praying for you as you move Please forward. Do. Absolutely. Um, yeah. And yeah, thank you so much for coming on. This has been absolutely incredible. Um, and I've learned so much. So to our listeners, uh, check out all of those episodes, uh, check out all those links in the show notes and, to the point that I'm not going to include anything of my own in the show notes because I want to give full attention and spotlight to uh, these resources. So go check those out, um, and we'll see you next week. Thank you so much for listening. Today's episode of Absurdity is sponsored by The Haystack. The Haystack is a voice for young adults in the Seventh-day Adventist Church that produces articles, music reviews, videos, and more. To check them out, go to
0: www.thehaystack.org. The Haystack. Life. Culture. Theology.